Well, Merry Christmas. Once again, I know it was yesterday, but say it again anyway. Um, I was thinking this uh, this past week, past couple weeks, about um, study of apologetics. Um, something that uh, I've just kind of found interesting for for quite some time. And of course, apologetics isn't the, the study of making an apology, as it's sometimes assumed. Apologetics comes from uh, the, the, uh, the word apologia, which means verbal defense. It's making a verbal defense. And so even though I grew up in a, in a household with uh, Christian parents, and I attended church from, uh, from the beginning of my life, and and, and have generally accepted uh, the things that I've uh, been taught about God, I still find myself captivated by the different arguments for the existence of God. And so Christian, uh, well, apologetics of the Christian faith is, is giving a, a verbal defense for the Christian faith and the Christian God, the one true God. And so when it comes to Christian apologetics, there's there's really a number of different forms of it, different uh, ways, methods in which, which arguments can be made. Um, for example, uh, one form of apologetics centers on natural theology, centers on things that we can learn about God through the observable universe, creation around us. And there's one argument in particular in, in that area of apologetics called the Kalam cosmological argument, and I promise it sounds more complicated than it is, but, but the Kalam cosmological argument states that, makes a couple statements, it says that one, be, because we observe that everything which begins to exist has a cause, so as we've looked around our world, as we've done study of different things, we've noticed that everything that begins to exist had a cause. There was a reason it began to exist. And because we look at our universe and we've done study and have noticed that the universe began to exist, because of those two things, the Kalam cosmological argument would say the universe has a cause. Premise one, premise two, and you get your outcome. And of course, if it can be established then that the universe has a cause, that there's some reason for it, then the door is open for the existence of God as the one who caused the universe to exist. So I told you it was the name's more complicated than the argument is. Um, but, but that's kind of just one form of, of uh, Christian apologetics. There, there's arguments from intelligent design. There's arguments from the existence of morality. There are arguments from the existence of Jesus as a human. Suffice it to say, there are enough arguments uh, in this broad field for a person to get an advanced degree in Christian apologetics. And the reason I bring this up this morning is, is because uh, apologetics is an area, um, an area of, of, of uh, study, of discussion, in which we can engage with someone who is skeptical about the existence of God or the existence of Jesus. And, and, and our goal isn't to just have all of these arguments that we can beat a person over the head by just dumping all of these arguments on top of them and just saying, well, you know, you, you can't refute any of those. I mean, that, that's not the goal. But 
all of these different apologetic arguments can, can be tools, can be things that we can utilize to have conversations with, um, with those around us. Because it's not uncommon for a person today to be skeptical of the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not uncommon to find someone who's skeptical of that. Um, I mean, you think about it, Jesus walked the earth nearly 2,000 years ago. It's been quite a while. It's no wonder that there's some skepticism in, in regards to that. But it doesn't mean that when Jesus was walking the earth that there wasn't skepticism then, right? That all, all the skepticism has come about since then. There was then too. And what we're going to see in our passage today is we're going to see people trying to discredit Jesus in, in different ways, two different ways primarily. There's going to be one group of people that's, that's going to try to write off Jesus' miracles. And there's going to be another group of people that, that questions Jesus' identity because they don't think he performed enough miracles. So two skeptical groups, and, and, and Jesus will uh, address both of them. Luke will, Luke will show us how he addressed, addressed both of them. Now, you know, in saying all this, I, I, I imagine that this is obvious, but, but when, I, when I prepare a sermon, I, I do my best to do so with our church body in mind. I mean, that probably goes without saying, but I said it anyway. Um, and, you know, I, 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 want what, I want what I say to not just be truth, but to be truth that, that, that's given in a contextually effective way. And so as I was studying today's passage re regarding these two groups of skeptics, I was kind of struggling with how, to, how this text meets the needs of us gathered here today. It's safe to say that we aren't a group comprised primarily of skeptics regarding the identity of Jesus. Now, now I don't want to assume that there's no one here who is skeptical about something regarding Jesus, but I'm confident that skepticism doesn't describe, doesn't define our group in general. And, and so, so it's kind of wrestling through that, and, and in light of that, I'm I'm still going to be sure to discuss the original intention of Jesus' words. I, uh, his words were spoken to people who were skeptical, and I want to be faithful to that. But I'm not going to spend all of our time this morning focused on that purpose. I, I, we're going to spend time looking at some of the secondary truths that, that uh, I think are maybe a little more applicable for us in general this morning. So, so I, I guess all that to say, if, if you're here today, and you're a bit skeptical about Jesus, there'll, there'll be something for you. If you're here today and you believe Jesus to be who he claims to be, there's something for you too. So hopefully we'll, we'll have something for everyone here. But, but with that being said, let, let's, let's begin working through our text in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And the whole scene begins with another miracle performed by Jesus. Luke 11, verse 14, it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them, and here's group number one, some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And then here's group number two, While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So it's interesting, we're given very few details about the healing that takes place here. 
And the whole, the whole miracle takes place in one verse. And right when we pick it up, it's like the miracle's already in action. Jesus was casting out a demon. So, so we had a man possessed by a demon. He couldn't speak as a result. Jesus cast out the demon. The man regained his ability to speak, and, and the people marveled at it. Now, that's all verse 14. <laughs> a lot going on there. It kind of seems like Luke doesn't want us to focus on the miracle itself as much as the people's response to it. Kind of, it's kind of the impression I'm getting as I read this here. We can still praise God for intervening in, intervening in this poor man's life in such a way that, that he was radically freed from this demon, and you could see it because he was able to speak. But for the purpose of Luke's gospel, the miracle set the stage for what was coming after for the discussions that, that Jesus is going to have here. And again, what we see in verses 15 and 16 are those, those two different groups of people responding in different ways to Jesus. In verse 15, one group of people accused Jesus of casting out demon by way of Satan's power. So the name Beelzebul, is, it's a name that literally means Lord of the house, and it was a common name used to reference Satan at that time. So, so they're accusing Jesus of driving out demons by the power of Satan. And then in verse 16, the other group wasn't satisfied with what they saw. The, this casting out of a demon wasn't enough for them, and, and they were seeking something greater. So in their eyes, Jesus needed to prove himself in an even greater way to be who he claimed to be. So two groups of skeptics here. And, and Jesus gave an answer to both of them, um, one at a time. So his, his first answer comes in verses 17 through 26. And, and his first answer is directed to those who thought he was casting out a demon by way of Satan's power. So look at verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household fails. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So as, as, uh, as I said earlier, we'll, we'll touch on Jesus' response to the skeptics, but we'll also look at kind of another truth that we see in this passage. So the response to the skeptics is pretty straightforward. The people present couldn't refute the fact that Jesus had cast out a demon from the mute man. Uh, I mean, he went from being mute to speaking, so something happened there. It's, it's hard, to, hard to dispute the fact itself. It's pretty clear proof. 
So rather than deny the miracle, they tried to discredit Jesus by, by connecting the source of his power back to Satan. But as Jesus went on to show, logically that claim stood upon pretty shaky foundation. I mean, I, wouldn't that mean that Satan was casting out his own agents sent to do his work? I mean, why would Satan cast out his own demons? That doesn't, doesn't make any sense. That, that, but that's the only logical conclusion based on the claims of the people. If they think he did it by Satan's power, then uh, again, it, and if that was indeed the case, then Satan's kingdom was doomed to fail. It was doomed to fall. Kingdom divide against, uh, divided against itself is laid waste. He said a divided household falls. And we might attribute that to Abraham Lincoln, but it goes back here. So, uh, and again, when making that statement, when he talks about a divided household falls, uh, Jesus might be doing a wordplay on Beelzebul, that term that means Lord of the house might be saying that the so-called Lord of the house can't even stand when he's divided against himself. And, and then to take things one step further, Jesus asked by whose power their sons cast out demons. And, and he's most likely referencing the Pharisees and other Jewish religious leaders. So whether or not they actually cast out demons doesn't really matter. They claimed to cast out demons and so based on their claims, Jesus wants to know, well, what about their power? If you say, I'm casting them out by Satan, then what about, what about your, own, your own religious leaders? And so it really is kind of a logical response given by Jesus to the accusations of the skeptics here. To those who questioned his source of power, he showed how that power could have only come from one standing against Satan, not with him, but standing against him. And of course, that's God himself. He says he does it by the finger of God. So that, that's responding to the skeptics. For, for those of us who don't doubt that Jesus' power came from God, there, there's still a good reminder in this scene, I think, about the reality of spiritual warfare. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the foundation for what Jesus is talking about here. In, in, our, in our culture today, this modern culture comprised of advanced medicine and advanced technology, at least compared with that of the Bible, um, we can easily push the spiritual realm to the back of our minds and, and seek natural causes and explanations for the things that happen in our lives. Or maybe we choose to focus on the good side of the spiritual realm, things like angels and miracles and heaven, but, but not the evil side. And, and what this teaching from Jesus unquestionably reminds us is that there is a spiritual battle taking place between two sides. That, that's just the reality. And that spiritual battle can show itself in different ways in our physical world. Here in Luke chapter 11, it showed itself through the mute man who was possessed and not able to speak. Now, you think about today's setting. If there was a man who was mute and unable to speak, uh, that same man today could go to a medical doctor and, and perhaps receive a diagnosis for, for his muteness, and he might even receive a treatment plan. But it's clear that demonic oppression was at the root of his issue 
I mean, there's no question based on, on what took place. Now, now in saying this, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not inferring by any means that every single physical ailment we experience is the direct result of demonic oppression. I'm not saying that. It, it's not, oh, my left pinky toe hurts today, and so I must need a deliverance, right? And that's kind of a comical way to say it, but that, that's not what I'm saying. A, a person can, can incorrectly attribute every bit of suffering in this fallen world to the work of demons in their lives. But our tendency probably isn't to err to that side of the spectrum. Our, our, our tendency is probably the other way, to not often think about the spiritual battle that's taking place around us. We would do well, I think, to reflect regularly on, on passages like Ephesians 6, for example, where Paul spoke about the spiritual armor of God given to us for this battle. We're, we're reminded our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And our role is not just as a bystander, but, but as someone called to put on the armor of God to actively stand against the schemes of the devil. We're, we're good to, we would be good to remind ourselves of that. Uh, Peter reminds us in his first letter that the devil is, is our adversary and he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Um, we read Revelation chapter 12 earlier in the service the Christmas story with spiritual glasses on, if you want to call it that, right? That's, that's, and again, it's a reminder that Satan was cast down to earth and he's angrily making war against mankind. I don't say all of that to scare us, but, but instead to remind us that, that, that the, the reality of the spiritual battle that's taking place. Even though our adversary is cunning and effective, we should not fear him. The kingdom of God is more powerful than the kingdom of Satan. We see that through what Jesus spoke in Luke 11. I mean, Jesus made it clear in his response to the skeptics that he casts out demons by the finger of God. So Jesus, when he talks about this uh, stronger man in verse 22 who attacks Satan, takes away his armor, divides his spoil, Jesus is that stronger man. He's talking about himself there. And so, so children of God should rightly consider the spiritual battle taking place around us, but, but ought not fear because the power of God is at work in us and, and through us as well. And in fact, the, the, uh, in verses 24 through 26, it, it speaks to this fact that even, even if a demon comes back to a person with seven other demons, it can only re-inhabit the house if the house is empty. Right? If the demon is cast out and the Spirit of God comes in, there's nothing that the demons can do then. In other words, if God himself is dwelling within a person, then they have nothing to fear regarding demon possession. This spiritual warfare is real, both then and now, but Jesus is all-powerful, both then and now. And so I think we can take that away from Jesus' response here to these skeptics. If you look at verses 27 and 28, they're, they're kind of the linchpin that holds this whole section together. And I actually want to end with those verses this morning. So well, I was going to say as long as you're good with it, but we're going to skip them anyway and come back to it, whether you like it or not. So we're going to end with those two verses. 
And we're gonna skip down to verse 29, where Jesus addresses the second group of skeptics. This group would, you know, say, you know, Jesus, supposedly, if you would, if you would do a greater sign, then we will believe you. We will believe who you claim to be. But, but listen to Jesus' response to them. Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, and when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So to those who wanted Jesus to perform another greater sign, Jesus told them that they weren't going to get it. He said, you're not going to get anything except for the sign of Jonah. And, and we know from the story of Jonah in the Old Testament and from Matthew's record of this statement from Jesus that the sign of Jonah refers to Jesus being buried in the tomb three days before rising again similar to how Jonah was three nights in the belly of a fish. And the assumption regarding Jonah is that after the fish experience, where Jonah finally relented and went to Nineveh, that the people of the city knew what had happened to him, that they knew what he had gone through. And so his message of repentance, what he was proclaiming to Nineveh, it was received because of his miraculous survival of being eaten by a fish, and that gave extra weight <laughs> to what he was saying. It wasn't just, you need to repent of your sins, it was, I was eaten by a fish. Three days later, here I am with this message for you. And they, they believed, they, they repented. Even, even the evil, wicked, Gentile Ninevites repented at the message proclaimed by Jonah. And then Jesus refers to the, the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba. In 1 Kings chapter 10, this queen traveled from southern Arabia to Jerusalem to experience for herself the wisdom of King Solomon that she had heard so much about. And again, a, a pagan Gentile queen recognized the wisdom and sought it out. And so Jesus himself, he, he says, I'm even greater than Solomon. I'm even greater than Jonah. You should, speaking to the crowd, you should rightly seek my wisdom and repent at my preaching because I'm even greater than those two who saw people coming to them to accept their teaching. And so to that skeptical group, Jesus basically says, it doesn't matter if an even greater miracle is performed or not. It does not matter. The problem was their reception 
of what they had seen in Jesus. That was the problem. That's why Jesus, in verse 33, starts talking about this, this metaphor about light. You know, it, we, we spent time discussing at the Christmas Eve service a couple days ago that Jesus is the light of the world. And when Jesus talks about lighting a lamp and putting it on a stand for all to see, he's talking about himself. I mean, he is that light that has come for all to see. The problem was not with Jesus, the light. The light had come, the light was on the stand, the light was shining. The problem was with those who were rejecting Jesus, described here as someone with a bad eye. I mean, that's what Jesus says. And it's really a powerful metaphor when you think about it. It doesn't matter how bright a light might be. If a person is completely blind, they're not going to see a thing. I mean, they could stare at a thousand watt light bulb, but if the eye is bad, no light comes in. No light is received. So what is needed is not a brighter light. I mean, we know this, right? When a person's blind, it's not like you just need a brighter light. What's needed is a healthy eye to receive the light. So the challenge to the skeptics was to consider how it wasn't the light that needed to be adjusted. The problem wasn't with Jesus, the light of the world. The problem was with their eyes, with their reception of him. If a person's heart is closed to Jesus, what's needed is not a greater, more powerful miracle from Jesus. What's needed is an open heart ready to receive him. That's the response to the skeptics here. And again, for those of us who have received Jesus and we have opened our hearts to him, again, I think there's still a good reminder in here that, that where we set our eyes matters. Even though we've received the light of the world, we can still let darkness into our lives at times. And oftentimes it is our physical eyes which become the gateway for the rest of ourselves. Uh, the things we look at become the things that we think about and the things that we desire. Um, you think about cell phones nowadays. Uh, most cell phones come with a, a report, maybe a weekly report, that will tell us exactly how many hours and minutes and seconds our screen was on during that week. And, and, and not only that, it'll tell us exactly how much time was spent on every specific app on our phone, won't it? Suppose we could access a similar report for our eyes. I mean, what, what would that be like? What would be included in that report? Where would the bulk of our vision be focused throughout the week? The, the writer of Hebrews gives us that great challenge in chapter 12, verse 2, when he, when he says to look to Jesus or set our eyes upon Jesus. And of course, Jesus isn't here physically, so we're not talking about our physical eyes looking upon the physical Jesus, but, but what's he saying? He's, he's talking about looking at the things of Jesus with our physical eyes, but also looking toward Jesus with our spiritual eyes as well. The things that we look at matters, and the writer of Hebrews knows that. Really, he's telling us to look ultimately upon the cross of Jesus and his current residence at the right hand of God in heaven. He's saying, look at those things, focus on those things. And so a question we can ask ourselves is, 
do the, do the things that I spend my time looking at guide my thoughts and my desires toward Jesus or do they, do they guide my thoughts and my desires away from Jesus? It's a good question we can ask ourselves. Because when our eyes are healthy, when we focus on the things of God, our body is full of light. When our eyes are open and healthy, light comes in. When our eyes are bad, when we, when we focus on the things that are not of God, our body is full of darkness. That's the, the warning from Jesus in this passage. So two groups of skeptics confronted Jesus. And, and as promised, we'll, we'll go back to verses 27 and 28. Right in the middle of all this, there, there's a woman that, that kind of seems to have interrupted Jesus in the midst of his teaching. And kind of how she interrupted there, Luke just puts the scene here and kind of interrupts his gospel as well. But, but it seems to me that it's in this interruption that we find the key to all that Jesus is saying to these two groups of skeptics and, and to us today as well. So look at what he says in verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Really, in a way, the, the, the woman here takes us back to the very event that we've been celebrating all throughout December. With, with the intention, I think, of honoring Mary and especially Jesus, she, she pronounces this blessing upon Mary for being the mother of Jesus. And there's no doubt, I think, there's no doubt that Mary was blessed to have been chosen for that role. There's no doubt there. But, but Jesus shifts the focus, and he pronounces an even greater blessing upon another group of people. So, as opposed to the skeptics who heard his words and didn't receive him, Jesus says that blessed are those who hear his words and keep them, or, or receive them, or obey them. So there's a very clear distinction between hearing and receiving, uh, between hearing and keeping his words. To simply hear the words of Jesus or read his words in the Bible is one thing, and it's not a bad thing, but, it, but it's also not the only thing, as Jesus says here. What's also important is the reception of those words. What's important is the living out of the words that he speaks. So if, as we think about ourselves here today, if, you know, if any of us have frequently heard the word of God, but not ever really received it and, and opened ourselves to it, then I would encourage you today to heed what Jesus said here. I would encourage you in that, to, to hear and keep the words of God is to be even more blessed than Mary. I mean, we ought to let that sink in. To hear and keep the words of God is to be even more blessed than Mary. And we probably all consider Mary to be pretty blessed to be the mother of Jesus. How blessed to be given that honor to nurture, provide for, 
care for, love the Son of God as only a mother can do. I mean, how great of a blessing that would have been for Mary. And yet, Jesus says, those who fear him, or who hear him, excuse me, and keep his words are even more blessed than that. And that, wow. <laughs> that is truly incredible. And that blessing's available to anyone. It's available to anyone to hear the words and receive them. And so, uh, if you've not experienced that blessing this morning, I encourage you to open yourself to Jesus. Open yourself to his words and receive them. Receive the, the promised blessing. I mean, this is a promise that Jesus gives here, that there's blessing that comes through hearing his words and receiving them. What a wonderful blessing that is for us. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's close this morning by, by thanking Jesus, by thanking him for revealing himself to us, for being that light that shines, but also for giving us that ability to be open to him. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you. Um, really, we're, we're in awe of you. We're in awe of your love. We're in awe of how that love led you to, to become human, to come to earth, to, to shine brightly in our midst. Thank you that, that you did that 2,000 years ago and that you continue to do that today through, through your written word, through your spirit actively working in this world. God, I pray for, for each of us here this morning. I, I pray especially for, for any who've heard your word, and that now includes all of us this morning, but, but haven't yet received it. God, I pray that you'd be working on their heart, that you'd be continually shining before them. God, and I pray that there'd be openness and reception there. And I thank you in advance for the wonderful blessing that comes with receiving you. And Father, I give you praise for all of us in here this morning who, who have those eyes, who've been opened to the light of you. I thank you for that. God, I thank you. It, it, in a way, it's so mysterious how you work in every step of that process. And even without fully understanding it, we thank you for it. We thank you for how you're working in our lives in ways that we recognize, but in ways that we don't as well. I thank you that as the light of the world, you've come in and you've transformed us, made us into your children. What a blessing. God, I pray that we would recognize what goes on around us as well. Spiritual battles taking place, the the impact that the things that we look at have on our lives. God, may we be, may we be focused upon you and what you're doing and, and how you're working. God, would you empower us? Would you, would you guide us? Would you mold us more and more into your children? And I pray that as we, as we conclude our time gathered here this morning, that we would rejoice in you together that we would worship you together and that we would depart from here unified as well, longing for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name.
Amen.